Welcome to Smart Casual, Images Fashion Podcast in collaboration with Kildare Village, dealing with personal style in a way that speaks to you. Hosted by me, Fashion Director Marie Kelly. And me, Eugene O'Connell, Image.ie staff writer. And me, Dominique McMullen, Digital Editor of Image Publications. In our 20s, 30s and 40s, we're three women across three decades with three unique perspectives on how fashion shapes the world. Fashion and personal style are about a lot more than the clothes we choose to put on every morning. They're about the world we live in and they're about who we choose to be. There's a lot of talk when it comes to fashion and we certainly love a chat. Welcome to Smart Casual. Given that it's Fashion Month and awards season, we'll be talking a little bit about the relationship between fashion and celebrity and discussing whether Fashion Month in particular is more about those Instagrammable moments than the collections themselves. Later in this episode, I'll also be chatting with Irish designer Helen Cody about her incredible career, during which she's dressed many a star for the Oscars, Tony Awards and Cannes Film Festival. So we'll get started this week with our highs of the week. Um... I think all of our highs are based on the Oscars. The Oscars only happened last night and we're recording this morning. So it is the top of all of our minds. My very favourite, though, has to be Billy Porter. Um, Honestly, just be still at my beating heart. It actually was just the most astonishing gown I've ever seen. So Billy Porter, for those of you who don't know, uh, stars in Pose. Um, He is a man of colour and he wore a velvet tuxedo ball gown. Um, and like I said, he was just absolutely stunning. Um, and it wasn't just stunning because of the fact that he was a man wearing a dress and that was a little something different. It was stunning because of what he spoke about in wearing it um, and because he didn't just look like a man in a dress. He he looked masculine while also looking feminine. Like he looked handsome and, and kind of rugged. Um, and it was really, really boundary pushing and really kind of challenged that status quo which is often challenged for women on the red carpet but very rarely challenged for men um, so he said his goal was to challenge expectations he asked what is masculinity what does that mean women show up every day in pants but the minute a man wears a dress the sees part so I just loved that he challenged that um, and the look on top of it all was inspired by and paid homage to ballroom icon, the legendary grandfather Hector Extravaganza uh, of the House of Extravaganza. And that's a Paris is burning RuPaul's Drag Race reference. Um, apologies if that's over anyone's head, but it only made me love the whole look more because I adore that show. Um, so that was definitely my winner. What about you, Marie? Um, so mine was a little bit more conservative, actually, than yours. It <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't be difficult. <laughs> um, I actually thought Ashley Graham, um, the model Ashley Graham, stole the show last night in a Zach Posen fishtail gown. And I just thought she looked so incredibly beautiful. Her hourglass figure, was like beyond stunning and I think any woman who doesn't love her curves right now needs to go and look at Ashley Graham in her Mm -hmm. Oscars gown last night she looked incredible and I think also she's got such a classically beautiful face and I think the traditional silhouette of the gown the two of them combined actually gave her a really fabulous old Hollywood glamour feel Mm -hmm. and actually I don't think you see that all that much on the red carpet these days Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of innovation and a lot of directional fashion but it was just so simple 
simply beautiful that I absolutely loved it. And I think actually, you know, in as much as um, Billy Porter stood out last night, for me, Ashley Graham did because it was just so not trying hard, so effortlessly simple and restrained. And sometimes that's really nice to see on the red carpet, I think. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I have two highs this week and my first was Gemma Chen at the Oscars. Agreed. <laughs> from Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah, she was unbelievable. She wore the most gorgeous cerise pink billowing Valentino dress. And I think it was just the perfect amount of drama without it being overwhelming. And I thought she really, really pulled it off. And over award season as a whole, she's been definitely one of my favourites. 100%. And then on an opposite side of things, uh, I found a new brand called Charles and Keith, which are... Just an amazing shoe and bag brand. I just love them. And like the prices are unbelievable. I think like the average price there is about 50 or 60 euro. And they're really like directional and fashion forward, really, really cool pieces. Mm. I see they've done a big drop on Instagram with a few influencers. But um, so, so cool. They have these the most amazing like Carrie Bradshaw style mules that I know people are going to hate, but I love them. <laughs> like they're ugly, but I love them. And I think I need them to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, I, I know that brand and I remember doing a piece on it uh, for Image.ie a while back. And actually, I don't understand how it's not better known. Exactly. I was shocked. It really, the collection is fantastic and the price point is even better. And it seems to remain a sort of a an insider secret or something. 100%. Um, hopefully not anymore because everybody's listening to Smart Casual, obviously. Exactly. But, um, but agreed, a really good find. Yeah. Brilliant. I'm looking them up the minute we walk out of this room. This week's topic is a really interesting one and one that got us all talking um, in image just today. There's a lot happening in the world of fashion right now. We are knee deep in fashion weeks with London behind us and Milan on the horizon. And this morning we took the time um, as the image.e fashion team to pause and to have a real think about what our readers actually want from these various fashion weeks. So what are they looking at? What content is making them excited? What are they tweeting? What are they sharing? What are they liking? What are they talking about? So we looked basically through data and analytics at this across our various platforms and we did notice patterns emerging Um, and the big kind of surprise I suppose and not a surprise at all for us was that rather than collection-based journalism that kind of historically magazines would be focusing on, um, our readers were talking about moments. So the perfect kind of example that we talked about this morning again was the type of moment that happened at the Victoria Beckham show, which I just thought was fascinating, actually. Um, So at the show, Harper Beckham had her new amazing haircut, which is a fringe bob. Um, I'm sure all of you saw this image, which is testament to what we're saying. But she happened to be sitting beside Anna Wintour, who had a strikingly similar haircut. It was actually slightly amusing but slightly disturbing image because she's so young and she felt like she was being pushed very much to the front but what was interesting was that image was shared all over the world much more than any image of any of the clothes or the collection by Victoria herself and first of all you questioned whether that image was staged which I'm pretty sure it was and I think we all kind of agreed it was but what was interesting is that the when you think about the concept that no publicity is bad publicity and that Probably that image did as good for Victoria Beckham at the label as any image of the collection would have. So we started questioning, okay, well, you know, what are these fashion weeks about now? Um, 
And what does that say about the fashion industry? What kind of moments are being shared? What What do you think, Marie? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting topic. And I do think fashion has become a lot more about um, celebrity and showmanship mm. in the last few years. Um, I absolutely loved Victoria's collection this season. I, I really, I thought it was, it was superb. Um, but having said that, there was far more commentary on social media about about that moment, about Harper's style and Harper's haircut than mm. there was about, about her clothes, which is really interesting. Um, I think, what about those designers who are producing beautiful collections who don't have an Instagrammable daughter yeah. or, you know, the, the made-for-Instagram family that Beckham has, you know, and or the level of celebrity that she has behind her. I mean, it doesn't really matter what she does at Fashion Week. It it, it gets huge amounts of coverage. And I think that's a, a sort of a dangerous and a potentially sad thing as well. Um, and I know when we were talking about this this morning, the first designer I started to think about was Irish designer Richard Malone. Um, who I interviewed a few years ago and he's a lovely guy from a working class background in County Wexford, very humble, extremely talented and for me, his collection this season was one of the best. I mean, it was so fresh and it was directional but it was accessible and it was modern and it was there There were so many pieces that I really wanted to genuinely go out and buy and wear mm. and that for me defines a great collection because um, you know I know I understand fashion is art and all of that but ultimately I want to wear the clothes so I, exactly. I am I'm, I'm quite pragmatic in how I look at collections and I, I love the, the wearable ones I mean inverted commas because obviously you want a little bit of aspiration and you know direction mm. and all of that kind of thing um, but it made me think about someone like him. Um, his collection was so strong, but, you know, he's he's not particularly Instagrammable, I no. guess, in, you know, the sense that we're talking about here today. <laughs> um, and I know that when I spoke to him, he was quite anti-Instagram insofar as yeah. he felt it sort of killed the buzz of the collection to be posting pictures of it online and also he works a lot with um, optical fabrics which just don't photograph well anyway. Mm. So um, you know I guess I would be worried that someone like him could maybe end up under the radar or not getting the kind of um, praise he deserves and it's not even about praise but not actually um, getting the kind of consumer that he deserves because yeah. he's just not as visible as, you know, mm. the Karl Lagerfels, the, you know, God rest him, the mm. Victoria Beckhams, the, you know, the Gucci, Molly Goddard, yeah. and, you know, even Gucci, which is, you know, so flamboyant and mm-hmm. crazy. I mean, you know, last season, what they carried, you know, plastic heads or something down yeah, the yeah, runway. You know, it, there's an element of, a huge element of showmanship. Theatre. exactly. Mm. Um, you know, which is fine. But, you know, I think we have to, you know, remember that that's, that's what that is. Yeah. Um, but the clothes are, you know, for me, maybe the most important mm. thing. Mm. But maybe they're not the most important thing to to other women maybe i mean it's it's my job to 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 look at the collections to know what they're about to you know to look at them all online etc um if i'm not at fashion week and i wonder maybe um maybe women out there aren't as interested in in just looking at the collections maybe they just want to see ultimately what those collections will dilute down to yeah. um on on the high street i don't know Aideen, what do you think yeah i would agree with you marie 100% um for me i suppose i consume fashion in kind of a mix so I'd always look at editorial overviews because I've always kind of loved fashion weeks and I love to see what trends are coming through what's going to filter down so I'd always look at that side and like when I was a teenager in particular when there was no social media like that's how 
you consumed your fashion was you got your monthly magazines um, and it was almost like kind of like a secret until time of publication. Whereas now definitely there has been a shift where the majority of what I consume is through social media and it's through the lens of Instagram, whether it be editors, buyers, influencers at Fashion Week. And that's how I consume my media, my fashion media. That's how I see trends. That's how I remember stuff. And as you were saying, Dominique, about moments, I think there definitely has been this shift where you need this big production. Like, for example, Chanel. I can't remember the clothes from some of Chanel's past seasons, but I can remember the production. I can remember the um, shopping centre, the supermarket, Mm. and I remember the airport, Mm. but I can't remember the clothes. And Mm. I think that's kind of sad in a way. Um, Another thing with which another thing which I think is important, it has the whole thing Instagram, the whole thing of social media has opened up fashion to a bigger audience. I think maybe one that wouldn't have consumed it in the mm. way that maybe we would traditionally. Um, and I think that's good, but it has made it a lot more saturated. So mm. it's harder for brands to make an impact. You have to stand out on social media now. Mm. That's how you're remembered. You have to have your big social media sell. It's how like we'd sell an article. You need that sell on your show for people to remember it. But then there are some designers who definitely let the clothes speak for themselves. And one of them this year for me was Mary Katransu in London Fashion Week. She's always known for her prints, um, very directional that way. But this year, and she did a complete 180. And I mean, her clothes were just amazing. Like they were just texture, there was feathers, there were sparkles. And um, a lot of people were actually saying, I like, saw, saw a lot of online commentary. And they were saying that people at the show were actually putting down their phones because they couldn't experience the clothes through their lens, they had to actually be there and actually feel it. And they said the whole show was very emotional. But then on the other hand, she didn't get the view, the viewership she mightn't have got on yeah, social media. It wasn't, yeah, yeah, she didn't get the coverage that she needed deserved. and that she deserved. So I think there is, there's negatives and positives. Yeah. Like, and I suppose it's, social media is a new thing. It is like we're, it's extremely new. It's only been here in the, whatever the, over the last decade. Mm. And I think a brand like Mary Catranzu, as we were saying earlier, can can afford to take that risk. You know, yeah. I mean, she's yeah. such a successful brand mm-hmm. and, you know, her clothes are worn by, you know, working women as well as celebrities on red carpets. I mean, she can she can take that risk and, and produce a collection mm-hmm. that she doesn't need, that sort she of um, Instagram coverage or whatever. Um, but I think, you know, I guess I feel for the, the younger, really talented designers yeah. who, who are trying to navigate that minefield. Yeah, you can almost divide up now designers into one of two categories that either they are you know, Molly Goddard, huge pink fluffy dresses that are making a big statement where, you know, Victor and Rolf is a perfect example, those meme dresses for Couture Fashion Week that were inspired by memes. It was all very meta, actually, inspired by memes and then created to be shared on social media with kind of catchphrases on them like, um, I'm not shy, I just don't like you or sorry, I'm late, I didn't really want to be here, that kind of thing. You can divide up designers into that category of Instagram share, you know, and those dresses are not made to be worn. Or designers like Margaret Howell or, you know, much more paired back that actually women want to wear and women and will filter down to the high street and women will wear. I suppose you probably would see dresses like those Victor and Rolf dresses filter down to the high street, but they'll probably become things like fast fashion. They'll become slogan tees that Agreed. might get worn once exactly. and then chucked out. You know, so there is that damaging kind of effect as well. Agreed. I think you're right. I think, you know, designers like Margaret Howell um, just create 
beautiful clothes, mm. beautiful wearable yeah. clothes. And sometimes it seems these days um, that's not enough. Yeah. Um, which, Those clothes know, are created for women. They are. Not for Instagram. And yes, exactly. And, and for real women who have jobs to do and children mm. to look after and who need to move and juggle and all of those things we talk about all the time. And mm. and I guess I, I think that's why I, I've always loved those kinds of designers because, you know, I look at their collections and see a multitude of things that I want to wear and that I know I'll yeah. be able to wear and get access to. Mm. And I, I guess I'm just quite pragmatic mm. in that way, you know. Mm. And there's longevity in, mm. in those kind of collections as well. Mm-hmm. You're not going to look back at them in 10 years and kind of go, oh my God. What were they thinking? Yeah. Yeah. Um, whereas like the Victor and Ralph meme dresses, you probably will. Whereas at the moment, they're delightful. You know? It's a fashion moment. It is. Like you said, it's, it's just a, a fashion moment. Yeah. And it creates That's a it. buzz around the fashion weeks, yeah. I think. Yeah. And like even though for Paris, like you're waiting for like the big thing. And like yeah. I think everyone in a way is waiting for Chanel, but you're waiting for that big moment. That, that wow. Yeah, that yeah. wow factor. That thing that's tweetable, one mm-hmm. image, you know, and mm-hmm. you can put a little caption on it and you'll get loads of yeah. likes. Exactly, exactly. you'll that's increase your own, you'll boost your own Instagram yeah. following. Mm-hmm. One designer, I think, that, that actually that did um, kind of cross over between those two categories and do it kind of beautifully was Natalie B. Coleman at London Fashion Week. She... Um, she kind of, it was very shareable content, but it was also extremely authentic and beautiful and certainly not all surface at all. So Coleman unveiled her collection, which is called Sisters, um, at London Fashion Week, and it was in collaboration with the United Nations. And it was all over my social media feeds. She's from Monaghan, and she often focuses on kind of subversive and humorous kind of themes throughout her, her different collections. But this one really took it to a totally new level um, it's, it was meant to symbolise a collective power, I'm reading this now but from her, but the collective power of sisterhood in these turbulent times um, the attention to detail was just amazing, it was basically the female reproductive system that was replicated using lots of kind of traditional female centric skills like embroidery uh, and knitting and lace making um, and that was replicated across lots of different types of outfits and shoes and these gorgeous big blouses um, and obviously it was visually completely stunning but also really powerful and it was that moment that was completely shareable and you know really spoke to the times you know that, that we're living in but also I'm sure we will look at it in 10 years and it will still have that power um, and also 10% of the profits went to the United Nations Sexual and Reproduction Health Agency Brilliant. so it just it ticks every box really. yeah. and it, it just you know I think if you can describe any designer as a feminist designer I think yeah, Natalie Coleman is it but yeah. it, it just that collection built on everything she's done in the past mm. so there was there was nothing sensationalist no. about no, it, it at all it was or... intention grabbing it's part of her MO yeah. as a designer and you know we've seen that from her in the past and she mm. continues to build on that so I think that that's what's so lovely about it. It's authentic. It's not sensationalist. It's not for Instagram. It's it's who she is as a designer, and mm. she's proved that mm. in seasons past as well. So you know, there's there's you can trust it. You can trust her. Yeah, it was the way to send a message because mm. I think some brands try, mm. but you can see that they're they're trying too hard to mm. get yeah. these messages out, and it's not authentic. And people under can see that straight away. Like it's so clear. Mm. Whereas I think it's coming from her, and that is what she does. As you were saying, Marie. So. Absolutely. People will jump on it. 
we are rejoicing here at Smart Casual this week because we can definitely feel the old stretch in the evenings. From classic trench coats to spectacular spring dresses and knits perfect for layering at the Coopels because it's still Ireland after all, Gildare Village has everything you need to update your spring wardrobe. So I'm here today with the very wonderful, very talented Irish designer, Helen Cody. Helen, it's great to have you here. Thank you for coming. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. So just to kick off, I mean, I think most people kind of have followed your career um, for, what, three decades now, probably? Yes, I'm 152, I know. (laughs) You've been in the industry for that long. But I'm always interested and intrigued by your time at French Vogue. And I'd love to hear you tell us a little bit about how you ended up there and what it was like to be part of that incredible environment. I was very much a fish out of water. I landed there straight from, pretty much straight from college, actually. I won a scholarship, one of seven people in Ireland. And um, I just decided that I wanted to go to Vogue. I wanted to go to French Vogue. I'd always been in love with styling and magazines. And I remember landing into the upper echelons of Condé Nast in Paris with my wild hair and my laney jumpers and looking around me (laughs) aghast at these incredible women who were so beautiful and so stylish and so thin and so perfectly poised. Um, And yeah, it was a bit of a shock to the system. They almost sound like caricatures, were they? Well, I mean, they were in, impeccably chic. Um, a lot of them were sort of Condé Nast shareholders' daughters look, waiting to sort of go to finishing school. And there were there were the genuine ones like Mary Emily Sauvé, of course, who's gone on to do incredible things in her career. Barbara Beaumel. I mean, I worked with amazing women. I mean, I really did work. With, and it was all women as well. Mm-hmm. There wasn't there was no men in sight. Um, but I mean, what an education! What a what an amazing education! I mean, to be front row at the shows, to be um, having access to the most beautiful couture, um, anything we wanted from anywhere mm-hmm. we wanted for for shoots was available to us. Um, no no expense spared. You had access to everything, everything, and I'm, I imagine budgets were limitless. There were no budgets. There were no budgets. There were no budgets. Wow. I mean, even to the point where. We were doing a shoot with the Supremes, a kind of a story on the Supremes. And there was a, there was a shot supposedly where they were in their studio and they were celebrating something. And this was a photograph. And we had the best patisserie maker in Paris make the most amazingly beautiful real cake. There was real champagne. I mean, it was just, you know, everything was just had to be perfect. It had to be the right thing. You know, so it had to be French Vogue. Standards I guess. were very high. Mm. Yes. What do you think you got most out of that experience of being there? Wow, so many things. Um, I suppose really the, the learning how to edit, learning how to look at something photographically and know whether it's going to work or it doesn't has educated me forever. Um, the extended experience of working with Azadine Laya, of course, was just, uh, you know, a game changer because I got to work so closely with him, um, right beside him in the studio. I mean, not that I was terribly wow. important, but um, just to watch him actually what physically was that making like to be around bonkers. Him? Because I was, at the time, I was still contracted to Vogue and um, through a long series of, of uh, instances, I ended up in Azadine's one night. Joe McKenna, his stylist, was was heading away and I I guess I, I got on well with people and I, I wrote them a letter afterwards to say thank you. And they um, they invited me back to work while Joe was, was gone for two months. So my editor said, well, this is an amazing experience, but you're working here, so you can do both. But you've got to be both places. So as long as I got to Vogue at nine... I could leave at three and then go to Azadine's. And basically, Azadine liked, liked to work until three in the morning. So you just, wow. I mean, look, I was 21, 22. I had energy to burn, so I was able to do it. But, um, what an incredible it was, it was, Yeah, I mean, it was just mm. absolutely incredible. And I suppose having watched him, it's the only kind of work experience I ever did with another designer. Um, 
I think just watching his dedication and his technique has never left me, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. kind of drive to, to make something perfection. And I'm wondering now why you moved back to Ireland. I mean, being around those incredible people, being in that world, why did you come home? Um, being really honest, I was very young. Um, I suppose I don't remember being ambitious, but I must have been because um, I got a call from RTE and I was, you know, 22 and thinking, you know, I wanted to get on. I wasn't being paid when I was in Paris, of course, which is just what's the standard issue in the fashion industry. And um, the opportunity to work as a French correspondent on an Irish fashion programme came up and I thought, I had deluded ideas about what that meant. I thought I might be on planes and I might be backwards and forwards. It wasn't that at all. Um, it was a different experience entirely. But that, that's what drew me back initially. Right. And then through working with Lainey Kyo and then working on TV commercials and doing movies and doing all kinds of things, I had a lot more freedom, I think, here because it's such a small market mm-hmm. to develop my career. Whereas had I stayed in Paris... I would have needed to take out endless bank loans to just get to the point where I would start earning a decent Where you could actually salary. earn money, yeah. 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 So do you think, because, you know, for a lot of people who live abroad, be it Paris or London or New York, um, especially in our industry, um, it's very difficult to come home because it's such a small industry here and perhaps the opportunities aren't the same. But did you, it sounds like you saw very quickly the silver lining and there is a big silver lining to being in Ireland in a smaller industry. Well, I look, you know, you can never regret what you do in life. And I look back and I think think um, I did amazing things in Ireland as a result of having been in Paris because, you know, the irony of going away and travelling is that people think you're, you've got to be better when you come back. So <laughs> true. isn't necessarily the case, but um, I got a lot of opportunities. But yeah, but I got an awful lot of opportunities. And also the word stylist was unheard of pretty much back back in the 80s and the late 80s. And so I came to Image and I worked with, I did an awful lot of work with Image. Um, I worked with all the various magazines. I styled the president. I worked at the cores. I started making clothes. I was doing all kinds of things. So, and I built a really good, um, an incredible portfolio of work actually with all the Irish photographers, which then led me to bring, to go to New York and I got an agent in New York subsequently. So I wouldn't have been able to do that had I not come back to Ireland to get my credits. Of course. So styling came first and then fashion design. Well, I I studied in NCAD and I graduated, but I I, I was absolutely adamant that I wanted to be a stylist when I left college. And what changed? Um, When I moved to New York, actually, it was the access to incredible fabrics and it was like um, somebody lifted the head off my, my creativity. I guess I'd been styling for six or seven years in Ireland um, before I moved to New York and I had bought my sewing machine and I had this bizarrely I had this tiny little space in my in my apartment which would service a small making facility so I just started making things and I was making everything and I was painting and I was gilding bowls and I was making dresses and I was making handbags and it just I it it was just so exciting to be there and um, I set up a stall at the Christmas market in Union Square. My friend said, you got to sell all these things that you're making. It's like an Aladdin's cave. And so I did. And I wheeled up this giant suitcase up to Union Square on Saturdays and started selling things. And Katrina Stish from Vogue, at the, she was at, in Vogue at the time, uh, picked up on it, as did a nylon magazine, as did a couple of the other magazines. And they wanted to write articles. And so I needed to get a distributor. I needed to sell the bags in. in uh, so I did the same thing, walked down Thompson Street, walked down and around the shops in Soho, took a couple of orders. And then they were subsequently able to write the articles. And a collection, a fashion collection was born, a, a, a handbag collection was born. Wow, and it almost... All very organic. Yeah, organic, mm. a little bit haphazard maybe, yeah. a, bit, a bit serendipitous. No thought, no, no, just the joy of making. And it's, I mean, it's never, I suppose that's what drives me daily is the joy of making mm. really. It's the creative process that mm. really, you know, the business side of it isn't so much my favourite thing. <laughs> no, it doesn't tend to be for fashion designers, does it? <laughs> no, not at all. I can totally understand that. 
Why did you end up specialising in what is essentially couture? I mean, your pieces are couture mm. um, as opposed to sort of ready to wear or, you know, accessories or I guess what we would consider to be um, pieces, clothes, Mass items that are, that, are, yeah. that are maybe more um, accessible, accessible for people, perhaps more profitable for you. I don't know, but you really do focus on it's all bespoke, custom made. Yeah. It's couture. Yeah. It's the love of the beautiful thing, I suppose. Um, I started sewing when I was about four. My mother will say I was four or five. And I've always worked with my hands and that's been my my raison d'etre, I suppose, for, for want of a better word. And I take such joy in the craftsmanship of making and um, and the finish and the detail. And I love the interaction with my clients. And I did dabble in in, uh, in uh, mass production. At one point, I was selling within into 40 stores, I think, back in 2002 with a manufacturer. And it was just heartbreaking because right. things would come back from China. They'd have subbed the linings. The zips weren't good quality. Things were, you know, the patterns had to be altered to fit the lay on the table. And I, I just saw things, these things shrinking and it just... I felt like I couldn't put my name, I wasn't happy to put my name to these things and it didn't really suit me. Whereas when I went back into my studio and it was just me and it was actually for a, while, a good while, it was just me on my own making. I just loved it, mm. absolutely loved it. And your pieces, I mean, they're so beautifully elaborate, feminine. I mean, they're they're so exquisite. And looking at you, you're style to me seems quite streamlined also you know probably has a little bit of a masculine hit off it maybe well lately it does and (laughs) (laughs) we're looking fabulous can I just say and I wonder do you really enjoy immersing yourself in in what is just absolute femininity and girlishness and frothiness and I mean I I, my I suppose my my character my personality is a very I'm a very romantic person and I'm very feminine Um, even when I try to make myself tougher it doesn't work Um, and I think I mean, as a as a designer, it's funny. I mean, I, I, when I worked with Azadine, I mean, Azadine wore the same clothes every day for 40 years. He just had endless Asian, these little Asian suits that he used to wear. And I kind of could relate to that almost. My uniform tends to be jeans and sweaters because I go into the studio and I don't want to think about myself mm. every day when I'm working. Plus, I bring my dogs everywhere and I walk with them every morning. So that's important to me. Um, and I suppose it's this delicious joy of creating something that's very ephemeral and feminine and whimsical it just really appeals to me. Mm. And how does how does it work in terms of you will a client will come into you with I guess a vision for a piece she wants. Um how does it work in terms of I, I can't imagine that every customer, you know, gives you, you know, a spot on perfect description of, of what they want. So you've got to work with her, I guess. Oh, it's a very interactive process and a lot of the time, you know, they might come in with a very set idea they might have looked on my website and they have a set idea of what they think is going to work on them but you know I'm like a doctor when I read a body I know what's going to work yeah. and what, what won't so we'll have the discussion we'll try on various different shapes and sizes to see what is working what isn't and, and a lot of the time they'll be quite surprised and then sometimes we might go back to the drawing board literally and I will just start sketching ideas for them and um, we twirl everything so it's, yes. it's you go back to the beginning so you get the shape right and it also I think it's a lot less frightening for clients because the big investment is obviously in the cloth in the, mm. in the correct cloth and we don't get to that stage before we've worked out the shape that works sure. on the body um, sometimes it's easier it works like that they try on a shape and it's working immediately and we just go straight into cloth which is great um, but, but it's a very interactive process and I also need to know from them you need to work out their personality, what mm. what their strengths and their weaknesses are. Do they want to shine? Do they want to recede? Yeah. All those things. You have to listen to them mm. and know what they what they mm. what they'll feel happiest in. Mm. That's all I care about, really. 
You must develop um, a lot of friendships from through those, you know, clients, client relationships, because I imagine you get to know a lot about each other. You do. And, you know, it's actually what is really incredible is, God, I'm so old, but I've been doing this so long <laughs> that I am now getting the daughters of clients coming to me or which is really amazing is that they will send me photographs of the daughters wearing dresses that I'd made maybe 20 years ago. And wow. to me, the first first thing that's lovely is that they keep them. And then the second thing is that they get to be reworn again and they get another life is just a testament to, well, you know, how much I love what I do. And I'm so glad that, the, you know, it sustains that's incredible. And to see the longevity of those pieces, I yeah. guess, must be incredible as well, given it's, the work well, that th- goes into them. I think that they see because it is, you know, we don't send everything off to be, you know, to be finished by mm. others. It's it's in my studio. It's all done. Mm. But there's only two of us working mm. there. So it's a very, very small business. And there's so much passion and love for every detail. I mean, even if I source vintage buttons in Paris or... I can incorporate a little bit of antique lace or something that makes it completely unique so that it can never be repeated is, I think, a really lovely thing. It's a wonderful thing. Do you travel a lot to source Not materials? <laughs> Not enough. <laughs> I wish I could travel more. Um, I go to Paris a lot. But yeah. um, apart from that, no, I generally, mm. yes, I'm, I'm, I'm buried, buried in my studio. Mm. With your dogs. <laughs> with, with Harry and Joe, with me everywhere, yeah. Um, I've got to mention the Stephanie Roach dress, oh. of course. Um, which, I mean, the global attention that that dress brought you was phenomenal. It was, actually. And she looked phenomenal in it. I mean, you transformed her from, um, you know, from a, a, you know, a football player to a red carpet, you know, celebrity. Diva, yeah, no, she looked amazing. But she's a gorgeous girl. She's such a lovely girl. And in fairness, she arrived um, to the studio um, in a, in a tracksuit. I think she'd come from football practice and um, she took off the tracksuit and I just saw these long, beautiful mm-hmm. legs and I thought, she's five foot, five foot ten, I think. And I thought, my goodness, they have to come out. And <laughs> I, the logic was, you know, she's going to be in a seat, she's, She's against all these footballers. They're all going to be in black tuxedos. She's got to be, she's got to shine. She's got to be the opposite of them. So when she tried on the pink dress, which I, it wasn't finished, I was still working on it. It, it was just, it was that instinctual thing of this is the perfect thing for you. This just is just, worked. this is, you were not going to get better than this. And putting her in a long dress wouldn't have been right. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I rest my case. There's that amazing photograph of Messi and uh, Ronaldo. Fabulous. Uh, just staring at her, you know, and her and her femininity and, and looking at, thinking, my God, she can play football as well, you know. Absolutely. And she looked so confident. She, she was, she, but she's a, she's a gorgeous girl. Mm. And I've actually dressed her for quite a few things since Fantastic. then. I dressed her for the White House and she's been on the Late Late Show and she's done all kinds of things. Like, actually, I saw her in your gown on the Late Late Show as yeah. well. It was beautiful she's as well. Lovely. Just fit her beautifully. Yeah, I think, you know, you really tapped into her personality. Yeah. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Like but she also her. grew. This was very new to her, and I think she really blossomed with the, with the whole, dressing up thing because mm. it was so alien to, to mm. her normal existence. But mm. she loved it. She absolutely loved it. Did that publicity? Did that change your business? <laughs> well, you see, hereby there's the tale that you know, if I was a business person, it would have changed my business. Uh. Of course, you hear the Zimmerman story, you know, with the, in Australia and how much that when when. Um, the princess wore her dress in Australia, but I, I had calls from so many places and we had made one dress. So there was one dress and there was not five dresses or <laughs> 10 dresses or 400 dresses. And they're very expensive. They're not, they're not manufactured. So people would faint when I tell them what they cost. So, they, you know, we just, 
it was. A, it, I think it became a limited edition of three, and I think we made two pink and one red, and that was the end of it. Then fabulous, but that's yeah. fitting almost. Which is lovely. It? it was yeah. lovely, and that it's, yeah. it's, it did its job. Yeah. yeah. And can I ask you who else you've dressed other celebrities, um, and what events you've dressed them for? Oh my goodness, um, I've dressed quite a few people. I mean, I dressed Saoirse Ronan. Um, I've dressed a lot of the Irish celebrities, obviously Amy Huberman. I've dressed Ali Hewson. I've dressed oh God, um, Sarah Green. Um, I've dressed Catherine Winnick, who's the lead in the, in the um, Game of Thrones. And she was at the world premiere of the Bond movie in London, which was quite amazing. Um, I think the biggest kind of hit I suppose I got was the Saoirse Ronan because Vogue magazine picked it up and she ended up on the best dress list. And that was international. And that really, you know, she was at a gala in New York and I, it just made me, it just gave me such a hit. It was amazing. I, I'd say I'm tingling just <laughs> listening listening to you speak about that. That must have been incredible. But it was, you know, and actually it was a complete surprise. I didn't know. I was only just scrolling social media a couple of weeks later and I googled her name and it just came up on the Vogue Best Dress list and I I was such a shock. I was just, it was, I remember ringing my mum and ringing my sisters and going, my God, I can't believe it. Um, I'm in Vogue and they have my name. It wasn't like they just said I'm wearing an Irish designer or wearing yes. whatever. They had, they, they knew my name. I couldn't believe it. So oh, how incredible. Yeah, very grateful oh. to Elizabeth Sullivan for, for, for that one. But, well, um, well deserved. Mm-hmm. Um, so Helen, on Smart Casual, we talk a lot um, about fashion, I guess, as our armour, um, as something we use to, to boost us, to, you know, help us to confront difficult day situations, all of that sort of thing. Um, And you had an extremely difficult, well, an extremely difficult couple of years because you've been dealing with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, did fashion help or hinder you through that experience? Um, It's kind of amazing because I suppose you get a diagnosis like that. It's a very frightening thing to happen. And when I look back now, and it was it was last year, it was just one year, I nearly think I nearly feel like it happened to somebody else. Mm-hmm. I don't even feel like it happened to me. And I used landmarks in the year and I used uh, times when I wasn't dying of chemo confusion um, to to dress up and to go to events and to make beautiful things for going to events to attend things. And when I could walk, I went out and I walked the dogs and I put on lipstick and I... Um, I did the best I could to look as well as I could because I really, really, really didn't want to look like I had cancer. I just, I didn't wear wigs because I didn't, they just, they just, I just looked awful in them. And I, so I developed this kind of new style of wearing hats, which has stuck with me and um, I'm still wearing them to this day. I'm obsessed with um, Freya, who, from, uh, Freya Ottaway from F.A.O. Yes. Melanie. Yes, she's, she's fabulous. Yeah. Oh, I would buy every single one mm. of her hats if I could. They're very modern contemporary, they're aren't so they? Cool. Yeah. They're so cool. So we've developed a great friendship and I've been wearing her hats ever since. And I wore scarves and I, um, I, I it's ironic that now, actually through the process, I wore a lot more colour and a lot stronger colour. I think it was almost like me saying I'm not going to disappear. I'm not going to be transparent. I am going to be strong and and appear well as much as I can. Um, and it really did help me. I remember going to my nephew's wedding in September and I had one more round of chemo to go and I was bald, but I made an incredible bonkers hat and I'd made this. I've also got really thin, so I'd lost a lot of weight. So I was fitting into my samples again. So I zipped myself into this beautiful lace dress and I actually felt amazing. I mean, I was really tired by the end of the day, but it made me feel like I could contribute and be part of his day and not be the invalid in the corner, you know, not able for it. So, yeah, I guess, you know, clothes can really empower you. I think you've taken what 
you know, we've always talked about it at Smart Casual, you know, you've taken it to the whole other level in, in so far as like we use fashion to deal with a, a, a difficult event we've to host or something like that. And I think, you know, you've used fashion to conquer, you know, what's an incredibly traumatic um, experience. It was, but I feel so grateful to the people who saw me through it. My husband was amazing, particularly Rory. Um, the staff and the nurses in Vincent's, oh my God, I'd kiss them all. They're incredible. And and my friends and, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing the amount of love that gets you through a difficult situation and how grateful and um, appreciative of the, the strength of human kindness. People were amazing to me. I mean, and that, that also really got me through it. I mean, it really was just knowing that you're loved is... My goodness, it's the most empowering thing ever. Absolutely. And I think that was very visible on Instagram. Obviously, I follow you on Instagram. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about us, you know, about social media, the good and the bad and Mm. all of that. But I think um, it was very clear, you know, all that love was gushing towards you. It was amazing because it was like, you know, in the beginning, I was very nervous of posting anything about it on Instagram. And then little by little, I got a little bit more confident to sort of to not be afraid to be honest, mm. which which I found actually um, really did help me as well. Just suddenly saying, actually, do you know so what, guys? I am sick and I do have cancer, but I'm getting better and I'm using food to get, help myself get back, get better. And I've found this amazing lipstick that, you know, or eyeshadow that doesn't sting me or whatever the thing was. Um, and, you know, it was lovely. It was like I felt like there was a team of amazing people connecting with me and all going, go on, Ellen, you can do this. Come mm-hmm. on, you're doing great. You're doing great. And it was just lovely. It was just lovely too. I know it's kind of a, a very bizarre thing that we've all clicked into this, you know, how many likes did I get? Yeah. And I went, but, but I really loved it. I mean, I can't say that I didn't because it was, it, it, it really helped me. It really made me feel like I wasn't alone, mm-hmm. you know, throughout and the And I process. imagine you were an incredible support to women out there as well. Other women going through it, looking at you you know, as as a survivor with your fabulous lipstick on, your great dress going, you know, it you doesn't do have this. to change me in a negative way. Well, I, I had, I, I was lucky that I went to ARC um, Cancer Services um, during my chemo and I got a lot of counselling from them and they were absolutely incredible to me. And I have subsequently become an ambassador for ARC, so I'm very pro anything I can do to support them um, and they're having a big fashion show on the 28th of March in the RDS and I urge everybody to buy tickets because it's for such an incredibly good cause and it's full of amazing Irish established and new Irish designers so Fantastic. it should be an amazing night. Yeah. Oh that's a wonderful note to finish on actually that's really terrific and um, Helen it was such a pleasure to have you here and thank you thank so you. much and continued success and good health. Thanks a million. This episode of Smart Casual was brought to you in collaboration with Kildare Village. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, make sure to rate, review and subscribe to us on SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify.